This week on The Elucidators, we're recording on Tuesday, August 11th, the week after a massive blast hit Lebanon's capital city of Beirut, one of the most culturally important metros in the Arab world, and a place that was once known as the Paris of the Middle East. Sadly, a lethal blend of incompetence, corruption, oligarchic politics, and explosive industrial chemicals has left Beirut and Lebanon on the brink of collapse. Also this week, we'll elucidate the next stage of the International Thermal Experimental Reactor, a fusion power project that has the potential to be a big piece of the climate change solution, and check in on which foreign powers are meddling in the 2020 U.S. presidential election and what they seem to be after. As always, thanks for listening, and if you have any questions or comments, hit us up on our Facebook page or email us at theelucidators, all one word, at gmail.com. And welcome to another episode of The Elucidators. As always, I'm your host, Steve Pally, And with me, as always, is my co-host, Pete Newsom. How you doing, Pete? I'm doing well, Steve. How are you, man? I'm chilling. Where are you at, man? I am actually up in Northern California right now. It's pretty great. It's the first time I've actually been out of Los Angeles in six months, and I've been spending some time in the forest, in the deep forest, and it is restorative. I will tell you that. I believe it. So meditating, observing nature, perhaps playing the bamboo flute? All of these things, whilst wearing a robe, of course. Okay. Yeah. No, that sounds copacetic, man. So are, are you detoxed? I don't know if I'm fully detoxed, but I feel like a different guy than I did one week ago, which is positive. Yeah, that's, I mean, I liked you a week ago, but I like you even more now. So damn, Steve, that means a lot, man. I hope next week you can say the same. Yeah. We'll no, see. I'm, I'm shifting zoom into aura vision and your aura is very calming. It's kind of purplish. Ah, blue. It's nice. That's where I've been trying to get it for a while. So that's cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You were headed kind of uh, in like the yellow zone, which is flashing pink. So blue sounds good. Yeah. No, I'm very much in the orange zone at the moment. But <laughs> Dude, how are you? What have you been up to, man? Uh, you know, dog days of summer here in LA. Still doing my job. Happy to have one. Even though, you know, I'd podcast full time if I could. Um, <laughs> hint, hint, hint. Yeah, but uh, playing some cool video games. I got the new Paper Mario for the Switch. It's very fun. Okay. Yeah. That sounds bomb. Yeah, super bomb. So okay. no specific complaints. I am going on vacation next week, like you just did. I'm planning to be back on Tuesday. So are you going to tune up your aura while you're out there? Hopefully. I'm going uh, to Solvang and perhaps doing some socially distanced wine tasting uh, with Mandy uh, because it is our, our anniversary. Oh, nice. I hope you'll be solving some of your <laughs> issues at that time. Yeah, exactly. My <laughs> my mental issues, yeah. Relaxation yeah. Is, is needed. Wine can um, help as well. Yeah, in, in moderation or when maximized, right on, as the man. case may be. You're also yeah. wearing a tank top with a galaxy printed on it, which is pretty rad. Yeah, I'm trying to expand my mind. So, <laughs> you know, it's cosmic. At the rate of the galaxy. Exactly. And it relates to one of our stories. That it does, week. that it does, yeah. But we'll get to that after our first and I think biggest story, which has to do with the tragedy unfolding in Lebanon last week, right, Pete? That's right. There was a gigantic 
explosion in the city of Beirut in Lebanon on Tuesday, the 4th of August. Yeah. Uh, as I would imagine most of our listeners and most people around the globe have seen at this point, there's a lot of video of it. Crazy video. Yeah, it's really one of the most insane videos I've ever seen because there was a smaller explosion before it, so a lot of people were already filming. And it's really something. What happened was 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that were being stored in a warehouse in Beirut's port exploded, blew up. Ammonium nitrate. Where have I heard that before? It's a chemical fertilizer that's also used to make homemade bombs. Okay, here's where I think you've heard of it. It's used to make homemade bombs similar to the truck bomb used in the Oklahoma City bombing. That's it. Is that the one? Oklahoma City. Okay. Yeah. So in this uh, Beirut blast, the explosion was so large that some people mistook it for an atomic explosion. Yeah, it was just huge. It was felt 150 plus miles away on the island of Cyprus. It was one of the largest non-nuclear explosions explosions in world history. Yeah, and there have been major ammonium nitrate explosions in the past um, where like ships collide with one another and one of the ships is holding like a bunch of ammunition, for instance. Wow. Yeah, apparently that happened in the 1940s near the United States. What a huge bummer. Yeah, level the town in Texas. So like this type of thing is not unprecedented, but like you would be forgiven for thinking that this what like an atomic bomb had gone off in Beirut because it generated a gigantic mushroom cloud. That's right. And yeah. you would even be forgiven for thinking that if you saw the video. Like you just said, the mushroom cloud is is just staggering to see. Yeah. Not what you want to see. It, it turns out that any large explosion, nuclear or non-nuclear, can generate mushroom clouds. But at first glance, it was just like, oh man. Right. This might have been the first time a conventional explosion was big enough and was being filmed to generate a yeah. mushroom cloud. Like almost all explosions this size have always been nuclear. That's why we associate yeah. the mushroom cloud with nuclear explosions. Excellent point. Yeah. So what is the magnitude of this, this tragedy? massive implications. Hundreds of people are dead. Thousands of people are injured. Hundreds of thousands of people are homeless now. Possibly as much as 5% of Lebanon's population. That's insane. So, you know, from one catastrophic event, 5% of the population being homeless is totally insane. Yeah. Yeah. And this comes in a country and a city that unfortunately is used to uh, tragedy. And we'll get into that a little bit later. 5%. Right of Lebanon's entire population being left homeless by a single explosion. Yeah. From one uh, uh, catastrophe in yeah. one, one moment. In addition to the human tragedies and deaths and injuries there, most of Beirut's grain supplies were destroyed in the blast. And that's not a, good. a type of bread is one of the main staple foods in Lebanon. So grain is a huge, hugely necessary uh, staple item to have. Yeah. And all of yeah. the grain in Beirut, was held in one storage silo, I believe. In the port, right? At the port, and yeah. So this completely leveled the port. Like, you look at, I've seen before and after satellite photos of the port, and you can see the building that the ammonium nitrate was in, in the before, and in the after, it's like literally a lagoon. A lagoon. Damn. Yeah, it's, it's, not like, it's not even grounded anymore. It just blasted a hole so big that the sea filled it in. That's just incredible. And yeah, there's no grain in that lagoon, unfortunately. No. So a good question to ask at this point is like, what was the ammonium nitrate doing there? 
what was it doing there? (laughs) So I'll expound. The ammonium nitrate apparently had been stored in that warehouse at the port in Beirut for more than six years after being impounded from a cargo ship. The story of the ship is a little bit interesting. Owned by a guy who lived in Cyprus. And it had its crew had they mutinied. They'd mutinied. And yes. so the first crew mutinied this and a second crew joined. And they were transporting this ammonium nitrate to Mozambique. That was the final destination. And this is like where in the world is Carmen San Diego, except that Carmen San Diego is a deadly explosive. Yeah, highly uh, explosive. This ship wasn't even meant to go to Beirut. They didn't have enough money to pay to go through the Suez Canal. So they were going to pick up more cargo in Beirut and transport it somewhere else to Jordan, actually, in order to get the money to go through the Suez Canal to get to Mozambique. So you're telling me this is kind of a budget operation? (laughs) It sounds like they weren't super well-funded and didn't exactly have all their T's crossed and Eyes dotted. They needed to apply for a payday loan to get to the <laughs> Suez Canal. <laughs> Instead of leaving Beirut, they were in fact impounded. The, their cargo was impounded. So mm. there was 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate brought into a warehouse on the port. Mm-hmm. Which is now a lagoon. Which is let's be let's be clear about what its current status is. It's, <laughs> yeah. It has achieved lagoon status. <laughs> yeah. The Lebanese government ignored multiple warnings over the last six years about the improper storage of the ammonium, ammonium nitrate, including mm. four warnings this year, and the final warning was sent the day of the explosion. So we have the receipts, is what you're saying. We have people emailing about this over and over and over again. This is not safe. It sure sounds yeah. like it. And apparently fireworks were being stored nearby <laughs> or something. Is that true? I, I don't know. I don't know if it's true or not, but uh, there was a primary explosion and then the secondary explosion That's which right. leveled the city. And I guess right? you're right. There was The primary explosion was obviously nowhere near as big and it could have been uh, fireworks. Yeah, it's speculation. And I don't mean to laugh because it's not funny, but no. you just look at this chain of circumstances, right? And you just think, wow, how do you assign responsibility for this? Never has the term an accident waiting to happen applied more perfectly to that. Because you can't trace the chain of custody anywhere. It's like the, the, the legal chain of custody for these chemicals is over three continents over the course of like 10 years Mm -hmm. or most of a decade. A lot of the companies and people no longer exist. The people involved can't be reached. Mm-hmm. And it's it's just like the responsibility has vanished into thin air. Sort of. Except that it spent six years in this warehouse <laughs> when it shouldn't have. Yeah. Right? Apparently, the ship that the chemicals had brought in on sank in the harbor two years ago. And it was just left there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's, <laughs> it's like... It, it wasn't blocking anything, so why not just leave it, right? That just is crazy. Yeah. <laughs> the whole thing is crazy. But now it has obviously led to tremendous loss in a country that unfortunately is used to tremendous loss. Talk a little bit about what Lebanon has gone through. Yeah, what Lebanon's all about. So Lebanon is a small country of about 6 million people on the Mediterranean. So nice beaches, sand, surf, sun, 
north of Israel. It is formerly a French colony. And before that, it belonged to the Ottoman Turks and various crusader states, the Arabs all the way back. It's been populated for a long time, and it, it's been fought over for a long time. Half of its people live in and around the capital, Beirut, which used to be called the Paris of the Middle East because it was really nice. It was wealthy, sophisticated, a major financial, tourism, and cultural hub. Perhaps the major cultural hub in the entire Arab world for a long time. Mm. More generally, Lebanon is one of the wealthiest, most developed, best educated, and most diverse Arab countries. And that diversity comes from its long history of being fought over by different peoples, all the way from the Crusades forward, basically. And this has resulted in an even split between three religions, basically one-third, 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 between uh, Sunni Muslims, Shia Muslims, and Christians. So that's, that's an important fact that we'll, we will uh, return to later. Mm. Now, there was a civil war, basically, that lasted for 15 years between 1975 and 1990 that was incredibly nasty. And it basically happened between these three sectarian groups because the power-sharing agreement, agreement between them broke down. And it completely devastated the country. This was the period of time where the Marine barracks in Beirut was bombed, killing, I think, into the hundreds of U.S. Marines. Oh, my God. Yeah. Israel and Syria have both occupied Lebanon at various points. The Israelis fought a war and took over Lebanon, or at least the southern part of the country, for a long period of time. Mm. Uh, Syria more recently. Starting at independence in the 1940s, and again after the Civil War, Lebanon adopted a new form of government to split power evenly between these three confessional groups. And political scientists call this the consociational model. And what this means is that the power split, the roughly even power split between the Sunni, Shia, and, and Christian peoples at the highest form of government is guaranteed constitutionally, irregardless of how well the government actually does. It's like you're always going to have one-third of the power for these groups. And what this means is that the warlords, basically, during the Civil War, are now in control of the government, <laughs> which is, in turn, highly corrupt and ineffective. And the people of Lebanon can't vote to change the power balance? No. It's constitutional, so they would have to basically overthrow the form of government entirely. Okay. And promulgate a new constitution. I'll tell you why that is unlikely to happen. Please do. One word, Hezbollah. And we've talked about Hezbollah before on this show. Hezbollah is a Shia militia controlled by Iran. It is fully funded by the Islamic Republic of Iran and is connected basically to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. It is considered a terrorist group in the West for good reason. They are the people that bombed the Marine barracks, and they're considered sort of the A-team of international terrorists. They've conducted operations all over the world, specifically anti-Israeli operations. In addition, they're also a political party in Lebanon, and they have dominated Lebanese politics because they have all the guns. They have tens of thousands of, of troops, you know, it's heavily armed militia, paramilitaries, basically. And in, importantly for this present discussion, 
It has formal control of Lebanon's transportation ministry, which controls Beirut's port. Okay, got it. So Hezbollah essentially controls the port. Yes. So they would have been responsible over the past six years for the dispensation of those explosives. I see. Is there any other country on earth where Hezbollah is a political party that is formally in the government? No, but Hezbollah has done things like sent fighters to Syria. They've been involved in, you know, parts of Palestine, and they fought wars against Israel Mm -hmm. most recently in 2006. But there's some thinking that they've been involved in places as far afield as Iraq and Yemen as well. Got it. But here in Lebanon, they are formally part of the government as a party. Very much so. Yeah. And they kind of have the whip hand in the government. Got it. But effectively, you know, they're, they collude with the equivalent sort of figures on the Sunni, Muslim, and Christian side of things that they used to fight in the Civil War. I see. So even though they're the most heavily armed and the most powerful, I think they're, they're, they're basically in cahoots with the, other, the leadership of the other two groups. It's in their interest to be in cahoots in this particular structure in the Lebanese government. Yeah, because these guys are in control and they basically rob the country blind. (laughs) And they team up to do it, okay. They team up to do it, that's right. So the explosion happened. Yeah. And what does Lebanon look like now, post-explosion? It's not looking good, man. People are pissed. For good reason, mass protests have gripped Beirut. And... We had mass protests in this country before, in in late 2019, but the protests this time are getting uh, a little bit darker, which is kind of what you'd expect after something like this. Demonstrators occupied the Foreign Environment and Economy Ministries, so three of the Hmm. major ministries of government chanting, prepare the gallows. Wow. And they've been hanging leaders in effigy, including Hezbollah's leader, Hassan Nasrallah. Huh, but they did not occupy the transportation ministry. No, so I don't know why that is. Probably because Hezbollah controls it and they're very heavily armed. So the furthest the protesters will go will be to hang Hezbollah's leader in effigy at this point. Maybe. We'll see where this goes. That's, that's how far they've gone, they've gone so far. Security forces have responded with tear gas, beatings, arrests, and so on, which is what you generally expect. Lebanon retains its own army and security forces, even though Hezbollah has parallel structures in, in those regards that are more competent and powerful. Mm. Yesterday, Monday the 10th, the cabinet resigned en masse, and the prime minister has called for early elections. The government has placed 20 port officials under house arrest. So the government has responded by quitting. (laughs) (laughs) Bold, bold action from the government. Yeah. Yeah. Although that's probably what the people want, right? I mean. (laughs) It's it's a good start. It's kind of a necessary start. But the thing is, the government actually is brand new to begin with. Right. I'll get to that. Yeah. (laughs) So this is a former French colony. French President Macron has said that international aid is on the way, but it will not go to the Lebanese government. It will go directly to the people through like food aid and stuff because he basically said pretty explicitly that the Lebanese government cannot be trusted not to steal it. Mm -hmm. And I think I've read an article basically interviewing people 
on the street in Beirut beseeching readers for international aid, but saying, do not under any circumstances send it to our government. Because it will never reach us. <laughs> it will never reach us, and it will just line the pockets of these cronies. It's all out on the table, what the government... Exactly. And all this stuff was known, but it was like, this is a disaster to end all the disasters for, for Lebanon. Here's the thing. The country was already in a state of crisis due to terrible mismanagement, corruption, and COVID-19. And as I said, this present government that just quit is brand new. The last government fell in October of last year after mass protests, after the government uh, tried to put a tax on WhatsApp, the popular communication really? app. Yes. So it didn't even try to shut down TikTok and they got... Who knows what's going to happen here, when and if that happens. But yeah, that brought down the government. Some more details about the Lebanese government's less than stupendous performance. The government hasn't agreed to a budget for 11 years. According to the World Bank, 10% of the country's GDP is lost to corruption every single year. Pretty hard to grow under those circumstances. Mm -hmm. In 2019, we had 25% unemployment and 30% poverty rate. In addition to a currency crisis for the Lebanese currency, which is the pound, which lost 80% of its value against the dollar, effectively entering a state of hyperinflation. It's just gross economic mismanagement, corruption, and theft. Notably, these protests in October cut across sectarian lines. Recall that the government is organized along the sectarian break, one third, one third, one third. But the younger generation, is a lot less religious. They don't necessarily remember the civil war. They don't care. They're just sick of terrible, corrupt governance. They want services. They want <laughs> like these warlords to stop stealing from sure. them. So young Sunni Muslims, young Shia Muslims, young Christians all got together and brought down this government in late 2019. Hmm. Unfortunately, COVID-19 in early 2020 made everything worse. And now many people are, are unable to o- afford food. And this problem has been exacerbated by all of their grain stores being blown up in this yeah. explosion. <laughs> COVID-19 made things worse. This explosion made things much, much, much worse. Much worse. So all of this to say, Lebanon seems to be headed for a Venezuela-like situation, which is to say total state failure and collapse. Hmm. Perhaps a resumption of civil war. Who knows? I'm seeing a 75% poverty rate is estimated by the end of 2020. Yeah, that's a Venezuela-like number. That's not a good number. Not a sustainable number. And something you mentioned while we were talking about this prior to recording, Pete, the Lebanese have actually petitioned France to come back and take the country back over as a colony. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Things are so bad. Has the world ever seen that before? A former colony saying, please come? I think in jest, uh, yeah. And even... In the early United States, after the Revolutionary War, there was some suggestion that we might invite a foreign monarch to take over the United States. I petitioned to have Boris Johnson be our permanent king on multiple occasions, but I'm gaining no traction. Yeah, we need Harry Dunn from Dumb and Dumber to be our king. (laughs) That's what we need. So highly impoverished people are now in danger of starving to death. And that is the situation as of right now in Lebanon. And the situation could go in any number of different directions. This is a very volatile area of the world, obviously, stuck between Syria 
and Israel Mm -hmm. with Turkey nearby. So yet another civil conflict at this point in time in this location is really the last thing the Middle East needs. But even if this, I mean, if this government is disintegrated, which it already essentially has been, they all stepped down. Yeah. It's not going to make a big difference when the new one convenes because they operate under this structure where they share power between those three religions. Yep. So you just get the same thing over and over. Exactly. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. It's like you can replace the government, but it won't help because of the way seats and offices are reserved for these different religious groups. So the informal leaders of these groups, which basically means major families, militias, and especially Hezbollah and Iran mm-hmm. are in control, not the voters. The voters can vote for different, you know, like the same clowns in different makeup, basically. Okay. So Lebanon has been called one of the most democratic countries in the Arab world, if not the most, but in terms of democratic responsiveness, which political scientists define as the degree to which policy matches public preferences, it actually sucks. People don't get what they want at all Mm -hmm. in no way, shape, or form. They mostly just get stolen from. So what does that leave as an option? That leaves the entire system needing to come down with a new constitution, getting rid of this consociational model in a revolutionary fashion. But I don't know if that can happen as long as Hezbollah is around because Hezbollah outguns the Lebanese army. (laughs) (laughs) They're very well armed and Iran is probably not going to let it happen, right? I see. So it's hard to predict a good outcome there, really. It's, It's not looking great. It could be the type of thing... I could see a Syria-like situation developing whereby the demonstrations morph into like an insurgency, which is more or less what happened in Syria. And then uh, foreign powers coming in and supporting the insurgents. Principally, this would be Israel and perhaps Turkey with Iran on the other side supporting Hezbollah. Mm. Not Really not where you want to be as a country. Absolutely. Yeah, so our thoughts are certainly with the people in Beirut and more broadly the people... In Lebanon, they don't deserve this. No. It's a great place. And like they need some form of change. I just don't see how it's going to happen. It will be great again, which has bad connotations here. Yeah. But that is the truth regarding Lebanon and Beirut. It may just take some time. All right. So that was our big story for the week. That was some pretty bad news. Pete, we need a piece of good news. We do. And this is really cool, Steve. Let's talk about... The International Thermal Experimental Reactor, ITER. What? So there's this new reactor that is under construction and it has reached its, quote, assembly phase. The ITER is the world's largest fusion reactor. So nuclear power plants that we know that already exist, those are fission reactors. And they, they have a lot of waste, radioactive waste, which is highly problematic. The type of reactor that we're talking about now is a fusion reactor, which has zero waste. It's kind of the holy grail of electricity and energy production. And uh, it's something that has been held up for a very long time as like a big solution to a lot of energy problems. And now this reactor is under has reached the assembly phase, which is a first okay. in world history. The plan to build this and the various steps to, to make it went into place in 2010. 
The reactor will enter the testing phase in 2025, and it will not be fully powered until 2035. So you're saying that this is a pretty big project, is what you're saying. It's a gigantic project. Um, it is the world's largest fusion reactor. It costs $25 billion, and it's financed by mm. a coalition, including the EU, the UK, China, India, Russia, Japan, South Korea, and the United States. Now, that's interesting, because I happen to know that at least some of those countries hate one another. That's right. But in a scientific arena, they're able to collaborate, which should... That's good news for us and everybody else. It absolutely is, and it should serve as some sort of proof of concept in other realms, mm. or you would hope, but I guess motivations are different in different realms. They are, yeah, but we're seeing similar scientific cooperation in the realm of uh, coronavirus research. That's true. I mean, Russia has its fantastic new uh, <laughs> vaccine that's going to absolutely Which succeed. Which I saw today that they've named uh, Sputnik Five, which I just love. They really w outright named it Sputnik. Yeah, yeah, Sputnik Five. That's how those guys roll. So twenty-five billion dollar project. That's right. Financed by at this point, thirty-five countries are now participating. Oh wow! These countries represent more than fifty percent of the uh, global population and eighty percent of the total global GDP. So what you're saying is, the people of Earth. Are building this. That's thing. right. The people <laughs> of Earth are getting together to work on this. A major fraction of the total population yeah. of the Earth is represented. A majority. And that's right. That's pretty cool. I think it's awesome. <laughs> I mean, ima imagine yeah. this thing working. It would be totally insane. Great, insanely great. And we'll yes. talk more about why that's true. The origin okay. origins of this project go back to 1985 when Mikhail Gorbachev proposed the project to Reagan. That's a long time ago. Yeah. Long time ago, during the Cold War, yeah, it turns out that the USSR and the United States actually cooperated during the Cold War. It wasn't all doom and gloom. It's, that's really cool to hear, actually. Yeah. So this reactor is a tokamak design. I believe that's a Russian word. Is that it? Is uh, okay. Mm -hmm. So the tokamak design was first used in the USSR. It's right. donut shaped, which is to say a circle. <laughs> why did you, why couldn't you just say donut design Poindexter? Why does it have to be a tokamak? Uh, good point, man. <laughs> Who can I write a letter to regarding that? Uh, the elucidator is all one word at gmail.com. <laughs> Dude, if I write an email to that, it's a true waste of my time. Um, <laughs> <laughs> just slack me, bro. I could, yeah, I could slack you. So the tokamak uses magnets to contain plasma heated to 150 million degrees Celsius, which is 10 times hotter than our sun's core. That sounds kind of dangerous. Sounds super dangerous. I don't actually understand how that's possible on the face of the earth, but clearly some engineers have thought it through. Um, yeah, we're, we're global news guys. We're IR guys. We're not physicists. This is true. My understanding is that the plasma, I guess, if something goes wrong, just kind of dissipates. <laughs> If, if the magnets shut off or something. That's pretty incredible. So it's 10 times hotter yeah. than the sun's core. But if something goes wrong, instead of destroying Earth instantly, it just doesn't. It just kind of just doesn't. Fizzles. It's just kind of fine. I mean, yeah. in many ways, it's, like, it's kind of, again, a holy grail of energy production. Yeah, it seems like. It, yeah. Because things can go extremely wrong with nuclear fission plants, as we've seen, of course. Hey, man, I go outside for a swim. I get a sunburn. And the sun's pretty far away. This is 10 times hotter. <laughs> so, <laughs> wow. You can't argue with that. So, Pete, what you're telling me is that 
this thing, in addition to being like a human, like humanity scale effort, Mm -hmm. might just be the most complex engineering project in human history. That's absolutely true. It might be exactly what you just said, the most complex uh, engineering project in human history. It's taken a long time to make this happen. The final design for it was approved in 2001. So now, Mm -hmm. 19 years later, all the parts finally have arrived for it to be built. And what are those parts? Well, we'll get into that. Let's talk about the location. They decided to put it in southern France, which is probably one of the most picturesque places for a power plant you could ever choose. Yeah, dog. It's in Provence. You can sip rosé and look at a fission plant donut. Yeah, check out your tokamak. (laughs) It's like solving the world's problems. (laughs) So here are some facts about the components of this thing. And here's why it might be the most complex engineering project in human history. It contains Mm. 3,000 tons of superconducting magnets sourced from the USA. It has... So that's more tonnage than the ammonium nitrate that just blew up in Beirut. That's right. Except this won't blow up. It'll just fizzle if something goes wrong. Yeah, it'll just fizzle. So they claim. This reactor has, as part of it, a 4,000-ton cryostat, or supercooled reactor base. And this part was made in India. Yeah, that thing apparently gets pretty darn close to absolute zero. So in this same machine, we have something that is 10 times hotter than the sun's core sitting on top of something that is very close to absolute zero. Yeah, it's like negative 240 degrees Celsius, something like that. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about extremes. It all all makes sense, right? Like That's what you need if you're going to have something that much uh, hotter. than. If you're going to have a star inside of a metal housing. That's right. So this thing, uh, this reactor will contain 10 times more steel than the Eiffel Tower. That's a lot of steel, Steve. What? Yeah, 10 times more. And that thing's made exclusively of steel. (laughs) (laughs) I've been to the Eiffel Tower. I have too, man. (laughs) What you just said doesn't make any sense, but I know it's true. Hey, man, there's plenty of steel to be found on this earth, it would appear. Yeah, and it's going into this reactor. Yeah, so a takeaway from this is that it turns out scientists are still cooperating, even though international cooperation at the state level is failing. Yeah, Very much so. As we said earlier, China and the U.S. at loggerheads, China and Japan hate each other, India and China hate each other, Mm -hmm. Russia and the U.S. China and Russia are cool. (laughs) But yeah, the EU and the U.K. don't like each other very much right now. Everybody's cooperating. Some serious adversaries on that list, but yeah, their science communities, their scientists are working together on this amazing project. It's no matter what nationality a poindexter may be. They all get together and sing Kumbaya when it comes to saving the earth. They'll hang out on a giant donut and sing Kumbaya. Yeah, this thing, we need this. We need energy not just to replace fossil fuels. We need energy to take carbon out of the atmosphere mechanically. We need that and we need it fast. We need it soon. Faster yeah. than than is like... Practicable without this. <laughs> there you go. Thanks, Steve. <laughs> yes. And another point is that it's much easier to spend $25 billion spread across 35 countries on a fusion moonshot like this thing mm-hmm. than to ask the general population to pay carbon taxes, Yeah, which they will never, ever vote for. Whether that is rational or not, it's true. It is short-term rational, and that is all 
most people see when they're yeah. thinking paycheck to paycheck day to day. So we better knock on wood and just wish the best of luck to this super cool donut fission reactor. Yeah, in reality, we need this and we need to plant trees and we need more fission reactors and we need carbon taxes and we need renewable power. Like we need to do everything all at the same time at maximum speed. But it is, I think, super cool that our civilization has developed to the point where we can actually attempt to build an artificial star. <laughs> and contain that <laughs> on the face of our planet. That's very cool. I mean, yeah, it almost seems like if, if we achieve that, if there are alien civilizations that are way more advanced than us, this was probably a step on their evolution. Being able to create so. energy like this. like The places you can go from there include interstellar travel, you can basically fly straight into my tank top, which depicts a galaxy. You guys can't see Steve, but he's looking at his own shirt right now. With this type of unlimited clean energy right. is, I think, a, a predicate to, to interstellar travel and stuff can like that. It be a big part of evolution of our species if it happens. Totally. Well, so that, that was our good news for the week. <laughs> Let's come back to Earth with some dirty nonsense mm -hmm. having to do with our third story election meddling in the 2020 U.S. presidential election. I feel like I've heard stories about election meddling in U.S. presidential elections before. Yes, 2016, not so much in 2018. You heard, you read stories about it, but apparently it didn't, it didn't actually didn't happen. happen that much. Yeah, it didn't work if it did happen. It is happening again. And we have learned this week that the U.S. intelligence community has indicated that several countries are actively meddling in the 2020 presidential election. And the three countries they've fingered are the usual suspects, Russia, China, and Iran. Russia is the most usual, or I guess you could say the most unusual <laughs> of these suspects because, you know, famously, they were accused very credibly of doing it in 2016. Mm -hmm. And this was documented in the Mueller report and before Congress, and so on and so forth. Russian operatives were indicted in the United States for election meddling activities. Now the U.S. intel community is saying, not surprisingly, that Russia is anti-Biden. Okay, so makes them pro-Trump yet again. Which they were in 2016. And this is kind of what you'd expect. They see Biden as being part of the U.S. foreign policy, quote-unquote, old guard, which he is, not just because he's 78 years old, but because he's been involved in U.S. foreign policy yeah. since roughly the late 1970s. He's one of the most legitimate members of that old guard that you could possibly find. Yeah, he's find. the oldest of the old yeah, guard. Among yeah. like living people, he is one of the oldest of the old guard. Yeah, and yeah, back when Russia was the Soviet Union, he's been around. Yeah. So I, th I think that's, it's not unreasonable <laughs> to consider him <laughs> part of that. Meanwhile, China and Iran are supposed to be pro-Biden for different reasons. Hmm. One reason is that China thinks Trump is quote-unquote unpredictable, which I think at this point is pretty hard to argue with. <laughs> I mean, he's very predictable in some ways, but when it comes to foreign policy, he's somewhat less predictable. Yeah. And I don't think the Chinese like that very much. In particular, he started out his administration fairly pro-China and had, I, you know, what he claimed to be a great relationship with Xi Jinping, you know, took him to Mar-a-Lago famously, ate steaks with him, so on. 
but at this point, uh, you know, we're dealing with the Chinese virus in the form of COVID-19. We have sanctions on individual government members in China and Hong Kong. We are calling them out over Xinjiang, the Muslim Uyghur concentration camps in Xinjiang. We are calling them out over military actions in the South China Sea. And we're calling them out over data gathering through apps that have relationships to the Chinese Communist Party, such as TikTok. Also, we shut down their, their, their consulate in Houston recently. Calling them out across the board. Across the board. It is a full court press leading up to the election. China doesn't like it. They would prefer to see Biden instead. Meanwhile, Iran thinks Biden is more likely to reinstate the JCPOA, which is the Iran deal, mm -hmm. which we talked about a few episodes ago. And they're pretty much 100% right about that. Yes, Although Trump claims today that if he is reelected, he will do a deal with Iran more or less immediately. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Which I have absolutely no reason to believe. <laughs> he will have no incentive whatsoever to do that. And I think Iran knows that. So <clears throat> what exactly are each of these countries doing to aid their preferred candidates? The Russians are kind of uh, the big kids on the block when it comes to this stuff, right, Pete? Well, they have experience from 2016. There's no doubt about that. Yep. And before, the USSR has been, and the KGB has been doing this for decades, basically. They've sort of honed their cyber abilities in the Facebook era, though, right? They have, yeah, with the Internet Research Agency and so on. Yeah, so Nancy Pelosi, the Democratic Speaker of the House of Representatives, has said that the threats posed by China, or Russia and China, are, quote-unquote, not equivalent. Mm-hmm. What does that mean? That means that Russia is more dangerous. Like, how so? Like, what exactly are they doing? As compared to China? Mm-hmm. I don't know exactly what she meant like that. I think perhaps she just meant that they are more, more sophisticated because they have more experience. Yes, they are. And they're, they're also doing things that specifically are killing Americans. In particular, they're spreading disinformation about the pandemic in the United States. Okay. They're spreading disinformation about vaccines, spreading disinformation about masks, and generally doing things to worsen the pandemic. Which, as far as we know, China is not doing. Russia's doing it and China isn't. Yeah, they, they may or may not be. If they are, that we haven't read about it. Yeah, I, it wouldn't surprise me that much if the Chinese are doing it, but at a lower level. Mm, okay. <laughs> Meanwhile, somebody on the Senate Foreign Intelligence Committee, Dick Blumenthal, <laughs> senator from Connecticut, has said... The classified briefings have been absolutely chilling, and he has called what he is seeing coming out of these briefings a break the glass moment. So you meaning break break glass in, in case of emergency. <laughs> so are we doing that? Are we breaking it? No, man, we're totally not breaking it, and we'll get to that. <laughs> are we even lightly tapping the glass? I think we're kind of washing the windows. Okay, that doesn't sound like enough. No, it's not not what is needed. Meanwhile, FBI has warned China's developing capabilities to interfere with local election systems and target members of Congress. And this makes sense, that they want to put pressure on individual members of Congress who are anti-China. Mm -hmm. um, they put sanctions recently on Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, for instance. They want to turn American policy around vis-a-vis -vis China and stop us from talking so much about what they're doing in China. And so, 
you know, if they're targeting individual members of Congress, they might be looking for compromat or blackmail materials. It's a different type of threat. I see. With different motives, different motivation. Different motives. Yeah. Uh, Different short-term motivation anyway. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Pete, you asked, what are we doing about it at the moment? So Trump himself is doing very little other than denying that the problem exists. (laughs) At least that it exists vis-a-vis his re-election ac- effort. He says that all three countries are trying to get Biden elected uh-huh. because that's kind of what you'd expect him to say. <laughs> He's unpredictable, but not in that regard. Yeah, not in that regard. However, parts of his administration are trying to address the problem, like the State Department, which recently spammed Russian and Iranian cell phones with offers for $10 million bounties for those who helped uncover election meddling campaigns originating from those countries. Uh, That's a massive amount of money. It's a lot of money and super annoying. I hate spam calls and spam messages. What about one that tells you you're going to get $10 million if you like give some info and you would actually get the money? I'm just some guy. I don't have any info. And like the apparently like uh, the Russian and Iranian internet has been kind of joking around <laughs> with this stuff <laughs> about how it's like, yeah, no, I'm going to start an influence campaign right now. <laughs> like arbitrage this money. <laughs> it's like, yeah, no, I started Facebook ads yesterday. <laughs> it's like, I know, I know a guy who's, who's meddling. <laughs> and uh, apparently the State Department has set up a hashtag, a trending hashtag uh, hashtag election underscore reward. Okay. To try to, I guess, get attention. I, I have to, <laughs> to wonder this. if they're actually going to pay out that money. It's just so much. I think they do. I think that the U.S. government, meaning the FBI and so on, pays hundreds of millions of dollars hmm. a year in bounties for information on criminals or foreign intelligence. Mm-hmm. So okay. it's this is a real thing. It totally is. But it's it's also... You know, it's pretty funny. It is pretty funny. And the reward is only for information regarding the hacking of voting systems, right? Yeah, it's not for disinformation. And disinformation is actually what's really hurting us at the moment. I mean, hacking voting systems is pretty bad too, but I think it's it's a more diffuse threat Mm -hmm. and perhaps not as serious given what's happening in the country. So that's that's Trump and the Trump administration. Biden has come out and said, basically, if if I'm elected president, I will treat foreign interference in our election as an adversarial act. Got it. Which is what Trump should have been doing all along, but has not been doing. Hasn't lifted a finger. Yeah. Well, he's he's just been, he's just denied the problem exists right. because he sees it as delegitimizing his election. He sees it as what it is. Yes, <laughs> exactly. So he'd, he'd rather, you know, just call it all BS. Okay. But Biden has said, I will inflict major damage on you Mm -hmm. uh, if I'm elected. So with that in mind, Russia is now doubly incentivized (laughs) to make sure that Biden is not elected, right? Right. Yeah. So we've got three countries, Russia, Iran, and China. They want different candidates, but Mm -hmm. what do they really want in the long term? That's a good question. So I think like Iran has a very specific short-term goal, which is to reinstate the Iran deal and get rid of the sanctions. Mm -hmm. And so they're just going to get the candidate in there that will actually do that, right? Russia and China have longer-term goals. So they have preferred candidates for the short-term stuff. But what they're really working for is general American division, disarray, and decline. 
They want America to fail. So, and the, I, th- I think the way to think about this is that presidential administrations, they only last four to eight years. And even if your guy gets in, who knows what he's going to do, right? Russia felt it was going to get a lot more out of Trump than it actually did. Trump has obviously really like embarrassingly licked Putin's boots, mm-hmm. more or less, and in just like completely unconscionable fashion. But his administration has not relieved sanctions on Russia. His administration has gotten out of arms control deals with Russia that have put more pressure on the Russians Mm. than they've wanted. And in the foreign policy arena, Trump has exited the Middle East, which is good for Russia, but it has certainly not done anything to help Russia in Eastern Europe. Right. Like the Ukraine. In fact, kind of the opposite. So, you know, Russia thought that it was going to get a lot more for its meddling buck, as it were. Mm-hmm. And this is this is kind of the thing. It's it's the same thing as when you appoint a Supreme Court justice. Right. You, know, you, you expect John Roberts to be a staunch conservative. And but there are no guarantees. There are no guarantees. So with that in mind, yeah, it's it, it might be better if you get a president in there who who seems better for you. But what they really want is, in the longer run, a paralyzed and weakened America. Mm-hmm. Because America will be much less able to stop either country from satisfying its geopolitical objectives and rebuilding the spheres of influence that they're, they're trying to build in, around Russia and China. Got it. So, sowing division in the American population is a relatively cheap and easy way to achieve that goal. Absolutely. Yeah, no, it's like, it'll hasten our national decline. And, you know, I think that over the past four years, our alliance systems have decayed because of who's been in charge. Mm -hmm. Certainly, domestically, we've had all kinds of problems and distractions. You know, the response to the pandemic, the recession, the problems with race relations, and, and so on. Basically everything. The United States is very focused on domestic policy right now. Mm-hmm. And it is a lot less focused on Russia and China. That's right. A lot less, a lot less focused than it could be. And in the even longer term, if our politics remain dysfunctional, we're not going to get the economic reforms we need. We're not going to get the educational and health reforms we need. And we're just going to become a second-rate country that can't do anything about Russia and China anyway. Right. There's a few different ways it could go for us at this point. Yeah. Exactly. I know which way I want it to go. <laughs> I think we're probably in agreement. <laughs> yeah, I think we're in agreement. Um, I won't say. Uh, no, I've said many Wait times. Wait till next week. Yeah, right. <laughs> when we reveal whether we want America to fail entirely. No, no, I'm, I'm in the, the, the anti-failure camp. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's like if our economy fails and we don't have an educated populace and everybody immigrates, we get brain drain and smart people don't come into the country in the first place our military is going to decline and we won't be able to project power to Russia and China anyway. It won't matter. Right. We'll just be stuck here fighting internal battles. Which is an easy way for those countries to... To win. <laughs> not to put too fine a point on it, especially China. Right. You know, Russia, like, look, they're, they're not going to come back like the, to where they were as the USSR. Mm-hmm. Russia is kind of a spent force. They can still cause a lot of problems. The Chinese, however are very far from a spent force. They're ascendant. They're, they're, yes, they are on the way up, and they have not yet reached their zenith. 
So yeah, uh, they have uh, a big incentive to sort of greet us on the way down, as it were. Absolutely. So let's talk about our takeaways from these three stories. <laughs> as far as Beirut goes, it's just a tragedy. It's terrible that it happened. Um, it happened it sucks, due man. to pure negligence and mismanagement, ineptitude, and corruption. Corruption, and we we hope, of course, that the Lebanese society is able to build back up and They've done, they did it once successfully after the, the end of the civil war in 1990, mm-hmm. 30 years ago. And, and they've had periods of war in between now and then too. But yeah, it's Beirut's a cool place and it, it, it doesn't deserve this. No place deserves something like this. Yeah, of course. So, but it's it's extremely painful. Before it gets better there, they're going to have to go through some pretty hard times, it looks like. I, I think so, unfortunately. I, I, I don't see like any sort of like national awakening or reconciliation as long as Iran and Hezbollah are, are basically occupying the center of power. Mm-hmm. I'm sure we'll see a lot of developments over the next month in Lebanon. Likely. If, if civil unrest you know, continues and gets more organized, then watch out, basically. Mm-hmm. Could be revolution. We shall see. Yeah. As far as ITER, the International Thermal Experimental Reactor goes, my takeaway is, damn, how cool is that? It's very cool. It's super cool. Yeah. It makes me proud to be human. Yeah, man. <laughs> Which, frankly, sometimes I'm not. Oh, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that type of global cooperation is very cool, and we'd love to see it elsewhere. And uh, it might mean unlimited, clean, safe energy for Earth, yep. which would... We won't know for another 15 years. We won't, but, but yeah. this might be the gigantic donut that we've been waiting for. Mm, delicious donut, Homer Simpson style. One of the things to note is that this project has actually catalyzed a bunch of activity on the part of many different startups that are working on Fusion now. Defense contractors, like I think you said Raytheon. It's actually, I think, Lockheed Martin. Raytheon might be, but Lockheed Martin is working on a tokamak that's only the size yep. of like a truck and it's highly secretive. They're not they're that's not releasing cool. any info. But as you say, multiple different companies have been spurned on to to get into this space and develop their own take on a fission reactor, which is where we want to be. Fusion reactor. Sorry. Fusion reactor. Thanks for correcting me. Yeah, um, we we want uh, we want fission reactors too, though. Okay, that's for that's a topic for another discussion. Yeah, <laughs> probably. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there's a, there's this global innovation race in the in the realm of fusion reactors now, which is a good thing. Yes, we need that, just like the new space race. And then as for this election meddling stuff, look, uh, we saw this in 2016. The jury is still out on what kind of effects it had in 2016. I've read credible academic sources saying that it was decisive. I've read credible academic sources saying that it definitely wasn't. It it was decisively pointless. (laughs) (laughs) It's being massively overblown as a uh, scapegoat for the fact that Trump was actually able to win this stupid thing. Yeah, I'm not surprised that these three countries want the candidates that they do to win. I'm not surprised that they're attempting these things. It's not clear to me that it will have any effect. I'm not surprised that Pelosi and Blumenthal 
are sounding the alarm because that's what I would I would expect them to do, even if like there's no real threat here. And to be clear, there might be. I just I I don't know, and I don't know that Russia and China know either. To be honest with you, <laughs> right? It doesn't cost them too much to try. Yeah, it doesn't cost them too much to try, and I do think that Russia is more organized, probably. But in terms of what it is they're actually trying to accomplish and and what it is they're doing, they're sowing chaos, mm-hmm. you know, and you know, with without the ability to hack specific election machines or stuff like that, ballot ballot boxes, uh, what can you really do? And at least some of those holes have been patched. The disinformation stuff, it's just corrosive. It's corrosive to civil society, which is breaking down in the United States. I think everybody would agree. And we're seemingly completely unable to defend against it. Mm-hmm. because of all our culture and our laws and our, I guess, our heritage as, you know, valuing free speech above most other things. Mm-hmm. And that allows it to propagate. Also, the monopoly power afforded to tech companies like Facebook. Right, um, the, the fact that Facebook gets to decide what the definition of free speech and protected speech should be, and sometimes that includes... Or not decide, <laughs> right? <laughs> to just kind of take a pass on all of that and say it's all cool, which has basically been Mark Zuckerberg's position all along uh-huh. and remains his position no matter what it is he's telling Congress. Right. If they wanted to stop this decisively, they could. But they don't and are not. I think it's basically that simple. Longer term, again, Russia and China want to see America fall apart. And they have to be encouraged <laughs> about what, they're, what they've seen recently. <laughs> That's right. Not that Russia is in fantastic shape, but, but China is, in most regards, doing pretty well. So Yeah, they're on the, they're on the rise. Yeah, and as, as far as Russia goes, I guess we'll see how Sputnik 5 performs. <laughs> <laughs> their vaccine. I mean, we hope it does as well as the first Sputnik. I mean, I'd like yeah. I'd like to see a, a vaccine that works, but it's likewise hard to say what the likelihood of that is. Well, all right, man. Good talking to you this week. Likewise, let's wrap it. Let's wrap it up, homie. And um, I will talk to you next week, Steve. All right, peace out.